You're listening to a sermon from River City Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. For more gospel-centered resources and to learn about our church, visit www.rivercitympls.com. Now here in Esther chapter 8, we are finally going to see the Jews gain victory over their enemies. And as the readers, we've been anticipating this moment. We've been optimistic that redemption would finally come. And so we'll read in Esther chapter 8. And as I do, would you stand to your feet for the reading of God's word if you're able? I'm going to read verses 1 through 5 of chapter 8, and then I'm going to jump to chapter 9 and read verses 1 through 3. It, those, those two together kind of summarize our passage well. And so Esther chapter 8, beginning verse 1. It says, On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king, and she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the king seems right, or, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. And now jumping to chapter 9, verse 1. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all the peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. This is the word of the Lord. Go and grab a seat and pray for us. Father, we thank you for the gift that is your word. We thank you that in it we see your redemptive work, that you are a God who changes stories and who redeems what is lost, repairs what is broken, turns what is evil into good. What a gift your word is to us. So now we ask that you'd help us to see it, to behold it, that your spirit would change us as we read it. So would you help us by the power of your spirit to behold the wondrous things that are found here in your word? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As many of you know, our church has been hosting an Alpha class throughout the fall. And in the Alpha class, uh, we will watch videos each week, and then we'll have discussions around tables. It's a class designed to promote discussion about some of life's biggest questions from a Christian perspective. And one of the things that I've been struck by throughout the course is that in all the videos that we watch, there's nearly always a story of someone who shares of this significant life change that happened because of Jesus. These are remarkable stories that we've been able to hear. 
One young woman, for example, shared about how her life was changed when her father, who had abandoned their family, met Jesus himself, repented, returned home, and then she also met Jesus and went from organizing parties at clubs to telling everyone she knew about the one who gave her new life. Another story is about a man who was declared dead from drugs and alcohol and malnutrition, but someone prayed for him at the hospital. He came back to life, and his life was completely changed by Jesus, and now he himself has hosted over 150 Alpha classes. As I watch these videos each week, I've been impacted myself by the way that I watch God changing lives. He is in the business of changing lives. And that's what I want us to see in our text today. Here's the primary message of the sermon. God changes stories, and he can change yours too. God loves to redeem what was broken, to find what was lost, and to undo what was done. And we have some people getting baptized here today, and you'll get to hear their stories. You'll get to hear stories of change in their lives as God has been at work in them. So my sermon's going to be a little bit shorter to facilitate the opportunity to have these baptisms, but here's the outline for you. It's a pretty simple one. First, we'll see how God changes the story in Esther, and then we'll see how God changes the story of history, and then we'll zoom back in and we'll see how God can change each of our stories. So first, God changes the story in Esther. The author of Esther uses some very specific language in our passage to show us how each of the threats to God's people are undone. And there are three key reversals. The first is a reversal of position in verses 1 and 2. Michael did a great job of helping us to see this reversal beginning in chapter 6 just a few weeks ago. And what was symbolically happening in chapter 6 as Haman led Mordecai around the city on a horse is now truly happening in chapter 8. In verse 1, Esther is given Haman's estate which means that all the wealth that he had previously used for wickedness is now under her direction. And in verse 2, the king's signet ring is taken from Haman and it is given to Mordecai. And the author uses almost the exact same language here in verse 2 that he did back in chapter 3, verse 10, when he had originally given the ring to Haman. And this is very intentional by the author because the repetition of language is meant to help us see how God is undoing what was done how he is changing the story here in Esther. This is one of the key literary features here of chapter 8. Over and over again, the author uses language from earlier in Esther to help us see that God is redeeming what was broken. God does not just ignore the evil that was done and just pave a new road. He smooths out what was broken, and he repaves the roads that had originally been laid for destruction. And the first reversal is one of position, as Mordecai and Esther finally and fully overcome the evil Haman. The second reversal here is one of power, where God's people gain victory over those who had intended to do them harm. This is the lengthiest part of our passage this morning, from verse 3 in chapter 8, and then all the way through into the beginning of chapter 9. It is the undoing of the edict that was written to destroy all the Jews. Verses 3 through 8, Esther pleads with the king to reverse that edict, but the king, once again, as he has throughout the entire story, is weak and he's passive. He takes no responsibility, so he abdicates the responsibility to solve the problem to Esther and Mordecai, who then draft a new edict that allows the Jews to organize and defend themselves against those who intended to do them harm. 
And we see the repetition here of the language most strongly in verses 9 through 12. As Mordecai's new edict is circulated throughout the kingdom, as the postal service of the Persian Empire gets to work, it closely mirrors what happened in Esther chapter 3, verses 12 through 15, where Haman's edict was initially sent. And again, the repetition of the language is the author's way of telling us God is undoing the evil that was done. The scribes being summoned in verse 9 also happened in chapter 3. The edict going to the satraps, governors, and officials. The edict being written in the name of the king in verse 10. The mounted couriers bringing the message. The use of the threefold words to destroy, kill, and annihilate from verse 11. All of this is repeated from chapter 3. But this time, it is to undo what was done back in chapter 3. And it is giving Jews the opportunity to defend themselves from the harm that was initially declared against them. And at the beginning of chapter 9, as we read a little bit, we see that the Jews do successfully defend themselves and gain victory over their enemies. The third reversal here in chapter 8 is a reversal of praise. In verse 15, after the edict is sent, it says that the city of Susa, that capital city, rejoiced. And once again, it's a reversal of what happened earlier. Maybe I'm beginning to sound like I'm on repeat, but it's because I want you to see how often the author is bringing up past events and showing how they are changed and different. Back in chapter 3, the city of Susa was thrown into confusion from Haman's edict. Now the city rejoiced because of Mordecai's edict. And among the Jews, it says in verse 16, they had light and gladness and joy and honor, which again is a reversal of the mourning that happened among the Jews in chapter 4. Three reversals are clearly seen here in chapter 8 of position, power, and praise. We've kind of noted throughout the series, God's name is not mentioned directly in the story of Esther, but yet he is on every page. What seem like mere coincidences are orchestrated by God, each word intentionally chosen to help us see that God changes the story in Esther. And that happens in Esther in the same way that God has been doing this throughout history ever since the fall in the garden. Not only does God change the story in Esther, but God changes the story of history. So we come to the second point. The story of the Bible is so often one of God turning things meant for evil into good. That's a summary that we're given at the end of Genesis, for example, and it is a storyline of scriptures. In the book of Genesis, there's this story about Joseph, this young man who was a little bit of an annoying and arrogant little brother. So his older brothers sold him into slavery to Egypt. And while in slavery, God elevates him to becoming Pharaoh's chief advisor. He was second in command. And through the wisdom and position that God had given him, he saved Egypt from famine. And through Egypt, he saved his brothers and his father as well. And at the end of Genesis, they're terrified that their brother's going to seek revenge. And in verse 20 of chapter 50 of Genesis, Joseph says to them, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. What happened with Joseph and what happened in Esther are not inconsistent with the rest of the Bible. In fact, this is the storyline of the Bible. The entire storyline is one of redemption, of undoing what was meant for evil. And you can tell that story with four main chapters, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And let me walk through those briefly with you. First, creation. At creation, God made the world good. And it says that God looked at his creation and he saw that it was 
good. God's good creation did not last very long, at least in the pages of Scripture. And then we get to the fall, where Adam and Eve rejected God and ate from the forbidden fruit. This fractured humanity's relationship with God and with one another, and selfishness, jealousy, violence, greed, pride, these became primary motives of the human heart. And the rest of the Bible then is about God undoing what was done in the garden. What God did in Esther and in Joseph, God is doing on a grand scale for all of creation. And so begins the third chapter of the Bible, at least the biblical storyline, redemption. In Genesis 12, God chooses one family from among among all the families of the world. And through the offspring of Abraham, God promised that one day he would undo what was done through sin. At times, God's plan of redemption may have felt fragile, as if all was going to be lost, but somehow God would intervene. He would redeem what was broken, change the story. And the consequence of the garden in in Genesis 3, it hung as a storm cloud over the world, keeping us from seeing the true light of God. Our fractured relationship with God and with one another defined our human existence until God sent his son, the offspring of Abraham, to become a blessing to the nations. In a way that no one could have expected, Jesus came and in his own life, he undid what was done. He was the opposite of all the motivations that came from the fall. Rather than selfishness, he lived with compassion. Rather than jealousy, he wanted good for others. He was not violent, but gentle and meek. Rather than greed consuming his heart, he became poor that we might become spiritually rich. And rather than pride, he lived with humility. In the same way that sin and death entered the world through one man, Adam, God changed the story of history through the coming of another man, Jesus. And not only did Jesus live the life we could not, he received the consequence that we deserved. God's ultimate undoing of what was done was accomplished at the cross. Jesus died as if he were us, so that we could live as if we were him. This is the way that God changes the story of history through the death of one man in place of all humanity. And now begins the fourth chapter of the story, the restoration of all things. The redemption that was won in Jesus has already happened, and the final and full restoration of all things is yet to come. And so we live in the already but not yet reality of this new creation. We are no longer slaves to idolatry and sin. God has changed the story, and one day he will set all things right in the world. What happens here in the book of Esther, it is a microcosm of what God has done in human history. He loves to make what was meant for evil and turn it for good. He loves to redeem what was broken and lost. And he does so by entering the story. C.S. Lewis once wrote that we do not relate to God like we do to someone living on the second floor of a building. We don't just jump on an elevator or climb the stairs to get to him. We relate to God more like Hamlet relates to Shakespeare. Hamlet would have no way of knowing Shakespeare unless he wrote himself into the play. He didn't just go look for him off the side of the stage unless the author made himself known. And in the story of the Bible, God has made himself known. The author wrote himself into the story. And God loves to change stories. That's what he did in Esther. That's what he does in the story of history. And that is what he does for every person who is redeemed by Jesus. And so we come to the third point. God can change each of our stories. Here's one thing 
The one thing I want you to hear in the sermon today, God changes stories, and he can change yours too. The first and most important change that we all need that God wants to bring to your life is your need for Jesus' death on your behalf. There's a story of a young boy named Tom who crafted this little boat. He carved it, he glued it together, he painted it, sanded it, he put a sail on it. It was a labor of love for this young boy. And he wasn't sure if it would work, so he took it to the water's edge. He walked up cautiously, and he set it in. And it floated, and he was so excited. His boat floated, and then eventually a gust of wind came and caught the sail and started taking it out from the shoreline. And before he knew it, it had gotten quite a ways out, and so he tried to go in after it, but he couldn't quite catch it in time. And so he watched in tears as it sailed out of view, and he went home sad. Several days later, he was walking home from school, and he saw a boat very similar to his in the window of his local thrift store. And sure enough, it was his boat. So he went inside the store, and he talked to the store owner, and he said, Sir, that's my boat. I made it. He showed him all the marks of his craft. He knew the boat well. But the store owner said, No, I'm sorry, son. That is my boat. I bought it yesterday. And so this little boy had no money on him. So we went home, he worked hard, he saved up his money, he went back a few days later, and he bought the boat. As he exited the store, you could just barely hear him say to himself, you're twice my boat. First, you are mine because I made you. Second, you are mine because I bought you. This little story of redemption is all of our stories. We were made by God but we were sold into the slavery of sin and idolatry. So we have been bought again by God through the blood of Jesus. In fact, our lives, each of our lives, can follow the same four chapters as the Bible. Chapter one, creation. We all have an origin story. We were all born in God's image. Each of us has a beginning by which our lives have been shaped. Chapter two, fall. We've all experienced the consequence of the fall. We have all felt the pain of broken relationships, the impact of selfishness, pride, and jealousy. And in a deeply painful moment, we will all realize that the fall didn't just happen to me, it happened in me. Idolatry and sin are not just out there, they are in here, and they are in my heart. Some of you are still stuck in the second chapter You are living under the curse of the fall, but don't even realize it or refuse to admit it to yourself because of how overwhelming it would be to be honest about what's in your heart. But let me assure you, God is faithful to his promises and he is in the business of changing lives and he will change yours as well. If you will see your own need and see the overwhelming love of the father towards you in Christ, then you can move to the third chapter in your own story. Chapter 3, redemption. Ephesians 2 says that we were all dead in our trespasses and sin, but God, rich in mercy, made us alive through Christ. And we have some people getting baptized today, and when they do, they will be giving a picture of this Ephesians 2 reality in their lives. They are going to tell us about how God did this in their own lives. When they go under the water, they're going to embody the reality of the death that hung over them, from the fall, and how in Christ they died to that old self in Jesus. And when they come back up out of the water, they're going to embody the reality that they are now alive in Jesus. 
We all have that same story if we are in Jesus, and yet each of our stories is unique. God changes stories, and he can change yours. And so we come to the fourth chapter, restoration. If you have been redeemed in Christ, God wants to bring restoration to your life as well. His spirit is alive in you, and he is making you more like Jesus right now, today. And so I want to ask you a very simple question. What do you believe God wants to restore in your life? Where does the story-changing God want to change your story? And that is not just a rhetorical question. I want you to genuinely ask that question. Maybe write it down in a journal. Text your answer to yourself if you want. Maybe it's something big. Maybe it's something small. Maybe it's something in your own heart, a misguided motivation or an idol or habitual sin. Maybe it's in a relationship. God's spirit is actively at work in the world, which means God is at work restoring what is broken. If he has already redeemed you by the blood of Jesus, trust that he wants to bring restoration. And it may not happen the way you want or when you want, but let's trust that the same God who undid the wickedness of Haman in the book of Esther, who undid the destruction of the fall through the death of Christ, he has the wisdom and the power to bring the right kind of change to your life as well. God loves to change lives, and he can change yours too. Thank you for listening to this sermon from River City Church. If you found this resource helpful, we encourage you to share it with your friends and family. We exist to see weary lives renewed through relationship with Jesus in the Twin Cities and beyond.